add my welcome to you all this morning and uh, invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 47. We are nearing the conclusion of this series of sermons entitled Becoming a Company of Peoples. I've had two friends die in the past three weeks. One of them was 80 years old and he passed away while in hospice care. His death was anticipated following a fairly rapid decline in his health. The other friend was just four years older than me and we'd actually spoken with each other at the funeral of our 80-year-old friend that was a week ago this past Monday, and he passed away unexpectedly in his sleep during the early hours of Thanksgiving morning. I I grieve the the loss of both of these men. Their their friendship meant much to me. And uh, though one's life in this world ended after weeks of critical care in the hospital, and the other's life ended suddenly and quietly lying in his own bed. On account of their their personal faith in and their love for and their devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, both of these, these men died well. That is, they died in peace because they were at peace with God Death is um, an ominous reality. If it's not for you, then something is probably a little bit off. Uh, Dying itself is an ominous reality, certainly, but even more, what comes after. According to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. In other words, the most ominous aspect of dying has to do with the the account we must give for the life that we lived. Question is, how can a sinful person stand before a holy God? That is an ominous thing. And therefore, death and dying are not not topics that we uh, necessarily find edifying. We just It's not the kind of thing you enjoy talking about. Um, Ours is a death-denying generation. Christians in the Middle Ages, uh, however, just reading a a biography of Martin Luther, Christians in the Middle Ages coined the term ars moriendi. It's a Latin phrase, ars moriendi, means the art of dying well. Even in the 17th century, Puritan pastors like Richard Baxter, uh, Baxter preached 16 sermons, 500 pages. He's got a big fat book on the saints' everlasting rest. Bunyan, John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Their intent in writing these things and preaching these sermons was not simply to expound the doctrine of heaven. They meant to prepare their people to die well. I remember an individual saying to me once, you know, that's how people do it, isn't it? 
pastor. They wait. They wait until they know their death is imminent. And then they get serious about their souls. Yeah, uh, that is how some do it. Um, But for those who care about dying well, of facing their last day and their God, this is not a matter of waiting until the end and then trying to put forward your best foot. It is, it's rather a matter of ars moriendi. It is a matter of learning the art of dying through a lifetime of daily habits of grace. So, needless to say, loved ones, our last day will come. And we would be wise to be learning and practicing these habits. And the earlier we do so, the better. Now, follow along. I'm going to read our text this morning, and I'm going to begin reading at Genesis chapter 47, verse 29. And we're going to consider this text under the title of Encouragement for Dying Well. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me In Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he said, I will do as you've said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Promised, that is. And then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, Your father is ill. And so he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came to Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. That's Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, 
Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. And then Joseph moved them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing hands for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And then drop down to verse 21. Then Israel, that's Jacob, of course, said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Let's pray. <clears throat> we turn to you, Lord, and ask for that which uh, flesh and blood are of no help whatsoever. We turn to you and ask you for the work of your spirit to bring illumination to the eyes of our hearts. We're asking that we would not just understand with our minds, but we are asking that we would be affected in the depths of our being. And we would, we would feel the, the weight and the gravity and the the life and the encouragement and the, the fire of your truth. This is not something that uh, human beings can make happen. That's why we're turning to you and that's why we're trusting you. We're, that's why we are relying upon you to make that so. For the sake of our joy and ultimately for the sake of your glory, for your praise, and not just generally speaking, but specifically here in our city, as well as to the ends of the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Moses wrote these words. He penned this book addressing a people, the people of Israel specifically at the time. It was nearing the end of 40 years of spinning their wheels, so to speak, in the wilderness. 
And his purpose in writing this account, this narrative, was to answer two questions. He needed to settle a couple of things because the people were anxious about two things. Was it right to leave Egypt? That burdened them. After 40 years of wandering around, that was a question. Did we do the right thing? And second, is it right to take the land? Is it right to move forward? We have buried nearly an entire generation in this wilderness. No doubt we will bury more if we engage the giants and the peoples in the land before us. So how can we know? How can we be certain that God's plan, that God's purpose is for us to move forward and do this? We're not even sure if we did the right thing in leaving. And so repeatedly throughout the book of Genesis, Moses again and again and again is communicating, God will be with you. God has been with you. God will bring you into the land. God can be trusted. Now go. Go. And our text begins and ends with Jacob's awareness that he is approaching the finish line of his life. He's facing his imminent passing. In 47 verse 29, it says, when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph. And then in chapter 48 verse 21, then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am about to die. Now see, the closer one is to the end of life, the things one is concerned with become quite focused. Listen, listen again to the text. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And then verse four, chapter 48, verse 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. This is meant to encourage people in the wilderness to know what they're supposed to do. My dad... Um, he had fallen and uh, broken his hip or broken his hip and fallen as those things aren't always clear about what happens first. And uh, the doctor told my dad that if he survived the surgery to repair his hip because of his age, he would be in bed for three months and then he would be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And my, my dad, being my dad, said, well, let's get everybody in here then and say goodbye. I'm not doing wheelchair the rest of my life. So that's what we did. We got everybody together and we said our goodbyes. 
and uh, feeling the uh, gravity of the moment, I pressed him one last time. I said, Dad, are you trusting Jesus alone and not your righteousness or your religion? Jesus alone to save you and make you right with God and to fulfill every promise God has made including the promise of eternal life and joy in Him. And uh, he looked me in the eye with, you know, (laughs) seriousness, and he said, absolutely, absolutely. I I could not have endured this long otherwise. And then he pulled me close, and he whispered, you make sure that mom is taken care of. The last words I heard him say were, let's get this show on the road. (laughs) The show being the surgery. Um, Of which he came through just fine. Uh, We all were all relieved and we all went home that day. And uh, the next afternoon, he died in his sleep. Burial plot was purchased, debts paid left just enough financial resources for my mom's care. Uh, He lived 91 years and 11 months. His faith was resolute. Once he knew that I would fulfill my promise to make sure mom was looked after, he was ready. Like Jacob was ready. Verse 31, he said to me, and he said, swear to me, promise me, And he swore to him, and then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. He's ready to go. Last days, last wish, last words. How would you know, how would you know you are ready? Ready to die well. I believe that we are ready to die well when... Our text gives us some guidance here. First and foremost, I'm ready to die on God's terms at God's time. Dying well means I'm ready to die on God's terms at God's time. That is not a small thing, by the way. Right? That is a very challenging thing. By nature, we all... We, we want everything. We want all things, including our death, on our terms. Certainly one of the more challenging verses in all of God's holy word is Psalm 139, verse 16, which says, In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. In other words, God formed, God wrote in His book every one of what? Our days. He wrote it all out before there were any of our days. In Acts 17, verse 26, it says, God has determined the allotted times and places of our lives. But if we are unhappy with God's number of our days, 
if his allotment of years is not pleasing to us, we will not die well. Chapter 47, verses 28 and 29 again. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. That was his allotment. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph. So loved ones, really, at the the most foundational level, in order to die well, the issue of lordship, the issue of who is in control must be settled. And in order for it to be settled, in order to say, not my will, but yours be done. We must have Christ. We must have Christ in order to say, into your hands, I commit my spirit Our disposition must be transformed. We must be born again. Until we have been made new and joined to Jesus, having become partakers of His divine nature, the day, the hour, the manner of our end will be relentlessly disturbing. Dying well means I'm okay with God being God regarding the time and the day. Second, dying well means that I am keeping short accounts. And by short accounts, I mean short accounts of unresolved offenses. Now, to be clear, um, dying well does not mean being absolutely and completely free from all unresolved, unreconciled, unrestored relationships. It can't mean that. That that would be simply impossible. Not even Jesus himself died having reconciled every broken relationship in his life. I mean, he left a trail of broken relationships. Not intentionally. But I do believe this implies responding, responding insofar as it depends on us to those relationships God in his sovereignty presents to us for reconciliation. He positions things, puts the pieces together so that the opportunity is there. Jacob says to Joseph in chapter 47, verse 29, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh. It's kind of a cultural thing that they did when they made pacts with each other. Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Having seen my share of dying scenes, one of the great temptations 
facing people who are on the threshold of eternity is related to the question, who can I trust? Who can I trust right now? At that moment, there is a profound awareness of vulnerability that is amplified. You're going to die. You know it. Fear of loss of control is overwhelming. Even those nearest to us can feel threatening. Trust matters in that moment. I, I, I remember the shock. It was shock that I felt when my parents in, it was about the last year of uh, my dad's life. Um, I remember him looking at my sister and me one, one day and said, you guys just want our money. <laughs> Where did that come from? I have visited with people in nursing homes who cannot even remember their name. But they are fixed in their minds on some individual who has wronged them in the past. And they will sit there and mutter and murmur. And you go, who, who are they talking about? Oh, this is somebody, they, this person died years ago. This is something that happened decades ago. It is clear that deeply rooted, unresolved bitterness can outlive one's brain cells. Unforgiveness is a powerful toxin. And dying well means that I am attentive to and I am responsive to and I am ready to take responsibility for resolving the relational debts which God in his kind providence presents to me to take care of. How hard is it to say are we okay? Is there anything we need to wrap up, make right? I urge you, insofar as it depends on you, do not leave, don't leave a mountain of unreconciled offenses follow you to your last day. In union with Christ, there is, we, sh we are partakers of God's divine nature. Therefore, there is power to forgive and there is power to be forgiven. There is power and wisdom to unpack all the complicated things. I'm keeping short accounts. Third, dying well is um, it's a sweet gift when I am attentive to God's formational presence and activity in my life. Here's what I mean. Um, people that are ready to die well have learned to be, they've learned the art and the practice of being detectives of divinity. It's not a term original with me, but I like that term. Detectives of divinity. There are, um, there's a number of you here with whom I have, 
I have facilitated the, um, the so-called post-it note exercise. And in the post-it note exercise, what we do is we, we take time, we take quite a bit of time, and we just brainstorm as, all, as many of the so-called critical formational events of our lives that we can remember. And we put them all down on little yellow post-it notes, and we stick them all over a page. And these critical events are, they're meaningful experiences, they're significant memories, they're impacting relationships, they're just things that, they, you know, we just, as we think through our whole life, man, these are the things that stand out. And after we've written down all these critical events on the yellow post-it notes, we stick them on a timeline of our lives. And then what we do is we transfer those post-it notes which happen to be particularly negative or painful or hurtful. We, we transfer those to pink post-it notes. There's no meaning about the color per se. It's just different. So we, 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 we see all these pink post-it notes which are the, the hard things in our lives. And then we reflect on the different chapters of our lives and the unique lessons that have uh, and learnings that happen during those respective chapters of our lives. And out of this exercise emerges um, a personal narrative, an autobiography, if you will. And uh, more significantly, perhaps, what emerges is a, is a heightened awareness and attentiveness to God's active and discernible presence in his providential ordering, forming of our lives. He, he, he wrote all of this out in his book before any of this came to be. And often, those who walk through this exercise discover they discovered that the Lord was to, sometimes to their to shock and awe, but more often to their great encouragement, he was much more involved in making them who they are through these critical events than they were previously aware. And the effect of that awareness is a growing peace and comfort level with who they are. And a deeper hope in the God who loves them and who crafted, authored this epic poem of life. God did this. God did this. He clearly has a plan and an intentional purpose for my life. Now, in Genesis chapter 48, Jacob opens a window for us into his own post-it note exercise, as well as God's developmental process in his life. Look at verse 3, starting in verse 3. God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. Now, now that, that was apparently... Obviously, a profound, critical, formational event, experience in Jacob's life. It stayed with him. It stayed with him till the end. God's discernible, manifest presence at that place, that time, was something he would never forget. 
And further, it wasn't simply some kind of subjective, emotional, you know, chicken skin thing, you know, high. Um, God spoke to him there. Verse 4, God Almighty appeared to me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples, a congregation, a spiritual community. And will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. That would leave an impression. So what have been the times and the seasons and the critical moments in your life when God was so discernibly near? God discernibly active. God discernibly addressing you. When were the times His presence and His power was sweetest? What are the promises? What are the promises that God has made to that seemed most personal to you. Oh, that, that is just for me. God just, that, that promise is like, that's for me right now. What has God spoken to you, said to you in the good times that has sustained you in and through the hard times? Loved ones, these are the fingerprints of God on your personal and developmental journey. He's working. And and it will serve you both now and later to register them somehow. Write them down. Make an, an altar of them, so to speak. So that you can go back to them and you know, experience them as reminders of God's personal activity and shaping work in your life. Jacob was profoundly and enduringly affected by what happened at Luz. But Jacob also had his pink post-it note experiences as well. Verse 7. When I came to Padden, to my sorrow, Rachel died. Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. The untimely death of his Rachel left a very deep mark on Jacob. And that's, it, it's typical when you do this post-it exercise. It is typical for the most painful things in life to leave the most enduring after effect. It stays with you. We remember what hurt. We remember most what hurt most. Genesis forty-eight eleven. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. After the death of his beloved wife, the loss of his beloved son, 
cast a massive shadow over Jacob's life. For years, we have seen, for years it consumed him. It ate him alive. Even after he learned that Joseph was still living, the bitterness lingered. His honest and transparent summation of his life to Pharaoh reveals the emotional scar tissue in his soul. Genesis 47, 9, he said, Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. But all the days God had written in the epic poem of Jacob's life had not yet come to be. Because the chapter following those evil years was sweet and healing. The older you get, the older you get, the more stuff there is in your timeline, the more clearly you can put it all in perspective. And in time, the Spirit of God helped Jacob reframe the storyline of his life through a a redemptive perspective. Listen to chapter 48, verse 5. And now... Now, your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Jacob refers to Joseph's two sons as his own sons. The guy who only had one son. He refers to them as his own, literally, this is the translation of the word, his seed. He sees these grandsons as his seed. And perhaps what's most remarkable is that he calls them his seed as Reuben and Simeon are. You know, Reuben and Simeon, his first sons, the sons born of Leah, his unloved wife, Reuben and Simeon, who for years he would not even own them as his sons. He wouldn't even name them as his sons. How his perspective has shifted. How his disposition, the disposition of his heart toward God has shifted. Look at verse 11. I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Verse 15. He blessed Joseph and said, the, this is amazing. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. May that God bless these boys. It's by the practice of attentive reflection on God's active and formational process through both the high points as well as the low points of his life that Jacob is a new man. He's not only comfortable in his own skin, in facing his own death. 
He is comfortable and at peace with God being God and God being the author of the entire storyline of his life, including the last days of his life. Now he can die well. Lastly, dying well includes for those who belong to God, those who belong to Christ, those who are disciples of Jesus, it, it includes active engagement in God's purpose to establish and fill the earth with a company of peoples. Those, the, the two men that I referred to at the very beginning of this sermon, friends of mine, they were both men who are vitally, profoundly, distinctly, discernibly, intentionally, self-consciously engaged in God's purpose to build a company of peoples. They were churchmen. They were missionaries. They were, they were disciple makers. We see this in the last days of Jacob. What mattered most to him at the end of his life is what mattered most to God. Look at verse 4, Genesis 48, verse 4. God Almighty said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. God had said that years earlier. Now the last day of his life, the last days of his life, boom, right there. He never lost sight of God's purpose. Verses 15, 16. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, blessed the boys, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my father Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the... It's translated here, earth in the ESV. This, this is the Hebrew word for land. It's the word we translate land. Let them fill the land. May this next generation be fully engaged in God's purpose to fill the land. This land that you should be moving into. This land. Fill this land with a healthy, harmonious company of worshipers. Fill the earth with worshipers. Chapter 48, verse 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. And so dying well is the sweet fruit of having engaged one's life wholeheartedly in a purpose worth dying for. God's purpose. God's purpose. Building a congregation of nations. All nations for the sake of all nations. And when one has been fully engaged, whatever that looks like for you in your life, on the last day the Lord will say, well done, good and faithful servant. This is, it's my joy to welcome you home. You can die well. So ask yourself, am I engaging 
Am I engaging together? Think of this whole story now. Am I engaging together with other messed up people? People with all kinds of issues. People with unresolved stuff in their lives. People that are just manifestly broken. Like the Jacob sons family. Holy moly. They're just a wreck. Am I engaged together with these people in becoming, in growing into, in developing under God's hand into a healthy, harmonious, worshiping, spiritual community? It's not going to happen overnight. Am I attentive to God's active and formational process all the days of my life? Am I keeping short accounts and forgiving others as God in Christ has forgiven me? Am I walking in glad surrender to Jesus as my Lord, Counselor, King, Commander? Lead on. Am I stewarding all that God has entrusted to me for the end for which Jesus sacrificed His life? Oh, that by the power of His grace and to the praise of His glory, may we keep growing in the art of dying well. And part of that is living in the good of the gospel. And so on this first Sunday of the month, our practice is to give our attention to Jesus' atoning sacrifice on our behalf. And uh, the way we do this, this is not a closed communion. If, if uh, you're trusting Christ Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sin, as well as the fulfillment of every promise that He has made, including making you into a company of peoples, including eternal life, and you count him as your Lord, um, we invite you to, to partake with us. Um, the way we do this is if you would come down the center and you take a... Um, we'll, we'll be here to serve you the, the, the juice and the bread. There is a um, gluten-free option in the smaller basket. And um, we invite you to uh, come as families. Friends, discipleship huddles, missional communities would love to in, serve you in this way. And um, as, as I was praying this morning, I just felt impressed by a couple things in, in this text that maybe you would give your attention to during this time. Um, Jacob says, I never expected to see, but behold, God has let me see. And what God let him see um, was not just literally his own son living, but God let him see his other sons differently in new light. He saw his grandchildren in different light. He saw God in a different light. And perhaps this morning you need fresh revelation to see God, uh, to see God in His faithfulness and His shepherding of your life and His power and His nearness and activity in everything. And you need His grace and power to see somebody differently. Whether you see them as a, a pain or you see them as an enemy or you see them as a pest 
or you don't see them at all. God wants you to see the spiritual offspring that are there for you to come alongside. And so, Lord, I pray blessing on our people, these people here, these loved ones. And uh, we celebrate being partakers by faith in, in you. We are partakers of a divine nature in Christ. There is a power. There is a life. There is a wisdom. There is a passion. There is a perspective of Jesus that is ours by faith being joined to Jesus. And so we we eat this bread and we drink this cup believing that you died for us to make us your own, to make us right with God. We trust you. We're depending on you and you alone. Now, be glorified. Amen.